Momentarily for class solidarity, cash circulating, give the masses back its currency. Greed from elites, only God stay fed, deep state, faith fed, everybody break bread. Racism, homophobia, sexism, religion, and it's melted by reliving. Time to build a new system, unionize labor rights, highlight the issue. Talking heads left is best. The saga continues. The No Miki Show. Hello and welcome to the Nomiki Show. I am Nomiki Konst and it is Wednesday, December 8th. I can't believe this year has gone by so fast. I'm not sure where you guys are on this, but I'm having a lot of existential issues right now. A lot of reflection on the last year, a lot of reflection on the pandemic, a lot of reflection on New York City and and where we've been, which we will talk about on today's show. Uh, But I think my frustration, and I, I'm, I have no doubt many of you feel this way, is we're still fighting this pandemic and we're fighting misinformation that is being weaponized, weaponized misinformation for political purposes to basically protect the ruling class. And our defense is supposed to be, you know, those who are in power, the Democrats, and there was this illusion, this thought that the Democrats may have learned their lessons after being defeated by Trump, after the margin, the very small margin of, of difference in votes, you know, George and Arizona, basically, uh, between between Donald Trump and Joe Biden, the margin in the Senate, the margin in Congress. And you'd think after, I don't know, the Democrats lost 1,200 seats in 10 years during the Obama administration, after the shellacking that something would have changed. And unfortunately, it seems as if they've doubled down. I, I don't mean the Build Back Better plan is doubling down, but you know the defense bill, which we're going to be discussing on today's show, the fact that the DNC is has eliminated basically any opposition from the corporate elite in the DNC, folks who aren't even Bernie people, who would say, you know, we just want some transparency. We want more investment in state parties. We want to be able to organize and recruit candidates so we can run against the 40-year Koch brother project. I feel scared. I, I honestly, you know, we talk about this a lot. And we've done a lot on the show about climate change, but I feel scared. I think all of us this summer and this year saw climate change get thrown in our faces. How many of us witnessed fires or tornadoes or hurricanes or earthquakes or sinkholes in places that never had sinkholes? Or torrential, you know, rain that flooded subways and basement apartments in New York and seeing how our infrastructure, which has been starved of resources because of the elite not wanting to pay taxes, we weren't even prepared for what a normal city is usually prepared for. You have urban planning. You have folks who are paid to to work on these plans, not just for climate change, but just any storm. So it's not just that climate change is in our faces and we're doing so little to, to, to thwart it. But we have barely any resources going into the infrastructure of this country, not just the infrastructure, in, in, into, into the social infrastructure, into the human rights of this country. And I don't mean you know what, what normal folks would call human rights. I mean just the ability to live, to live and not struggle. And I'm really concerned because the incremental approach is is not working. We know this. And 
I, I do feel that parts of the Biden administration have been fighting very hard for some major systemic changes. And, and you know, the relief packages are definitely larger than any relief package since FDR. With that being said, we still have giveaways to a lot of wealthy people. We're still not willing to take on real estate. We're still not willing to take on oligarchs who are sucking up our real estate and not paying taxes. And the truth is, conservatives are using every single crisis to their advantage that they can organize. Until we're able to organize and get hyper-local, we're not going to be able to defeat the Koch brothers. We're not going to be able to defeat gerrymandering, which is going to truly screw us. We're not going to be able to defeat anything at the congressional level or at the state legislative level. Things like, I don't know, how Eric Adams is talking about turning New York City into a crypto city and paying bills with crypto. What? What? This is a real conversation coming out of the mayor-elect right now. His chief advisor is this guy, Brock Pierce, who's on the Lolita Express and was indicted for that. Is this a world that we're living in right now? And, they, and they're more concerned that Bernie Sanders has like a coat that was 200 bucks. We have to be more strategic. And I, I don't know what the solution is. Um, I think everybody can do their part. I think we have to start winning elections. We have to start thinking outside the box. I mean, we are winning elections, but I mean thinking outside the box about how we win elections. So with that, I want to pitch one thing. We're going to do this on the show regularly. Uh, you all know that I'm part of an organization called Matriarch. Matriarch supports working class progressive women running for office. And Matriarch is throwing a an event, a training program for all candidates that are working class progressive women, very important, who are interested in running or are, are running in 2022, and uh, and their senior staff if if they have you know senior staff at that time. Uh, the launch of the training program was announced this week. It's going to be on January 29th. It is a digital training program. It's very exciting. Uh, you can go to matriarchpack.com. You will see the information up there. We're also, the nominations have opened up. So if you know of an amazing candidate, a working class progressive woman who is running uh, federal all the way down ballot, you know, definitely submit a nomination. You cannot submit yourself. You have to find somebody from your community. Surely there's somebody who loves you. Uh, otherwise, I don't think you'd be running for office. But go go on the form. I get a lot of emails. I cannot endorse. I cannot do anything. I cannot pull strings. So I'm just going to say that on the record because I'd be surprised how many emails I get. Um, but we're really excited to have this program. It's a different type of training program. It addresses the systemic issues that candidates are facing, that working class progressive women are facing, that we learned last cycle, uh, You know how to become viable earlier, how to get the big endorsements earlier so that you can raise more money and keep up with your opponent. Uh, that's Corey Bush on the front page right there. She's one of our incredible wins. She's a founding member of Matriarch. We're very excited uh, to work with her in 2020. But uh, this is going to be very exciting, and we are trying to raise $30,000 by the end of the month to do this training and to make sure that everybody has access to this training program. So if you are able to throw in a couple of bucks, go to matriarchpack.com. Trust me, it makes a difference. It helps us buy ads. It helps us get you know, trainers uh, to be able to, to support this work. We're dealing with a lot of the class issues that, that women face when they're running um, a lot of the other systemic issues. And then there's just the nuts and bolts. That's going to be part of the training program. So if you could throw in a couple of bucks, it makes a huge difference. It goes basically to the expenses of the training. And that is it. All right, guys, we have an exceptional show today, a really wonderful show. Uh, we have Alex Vasquez, who is a community organizer with CASA. It's an organization based in Maryland. They've been doing a lot of work around housing. That is what they do. Uh, but they had a big action a month ago. And 
and he's going to come on and, and reflect, you know, how that action went. And then later we have Mal Michael Alpert, who is the author of No Bosses, A New Economy for a Better World. And then our panel, Rose Adams and Napoleon the Legend are back. We're going to talk about de Blasio. How does he rate? Be a little surprised by this. You might be surprised by my take. How does de Blasio rate as a mayor of New York, the largest city in the country? He's about to be out. There's about a month left in his term. And uh, we'll be talking about the defense bill that was just passed yesterday. Sweeping defense bill and the implications that that has on, uh, on the U.S. and foreign policy. And we're going to talk about much, much more. Stick around. Welcome back to the Nomihi Show. Alex Vasquez is a community organizer uh, for the Maryland organization called CASA. Uh, he's lead organizer in Montgomery County, and they just put together this effort. Uh, CASA had this march to put pressure on. I mean, we have a housing crisis, as we all know. It's it's it was <laughs> it was not given enough attention, clearly. Uh, but the march was to put pressure on the housing crisis in relation to immigration and climate. Uh, Alex, thanks for joining the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me. How are you? Of course, very good. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. So, Alex, uh, let's just start off with what Casa does. Yeah, so CASA is a nonprofit organization that fights for uh, immigrant rights. Uh, we're one of the largest immigrant rights organizations in the mid-Atlantic region. So we uh, do work in Maryland, Pennsylvania, Virginia, now most recently Georgia, and we have members from all across the United States. And so we do a lot of work when it comes to not only immigration, but also housing and other social justice issues as well. So you're based in Montgomery County, and from what I know about Montgomery County is it's very close to Washington, D.C. in the Beltway, and there's a lot of money there, and I imagine there's a there's a bit of a housing crisis there, just, just to start with that little region we can expand. Can you, can yeah. you explain some of the dynamics of how that that's... It, and, and there was also, well, actually, just go ahead. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So um, I'm I'm one of the organizers in Montgomery County. Obviously, it's one of the, the wealthiest counties in the United States. And housing costs are going through the roof. And Montgomery County is actually one of the most diverse counties in the United States, where a lot of communities, a lot of immigrant communities thrive. And they're really feeling the pressure of just high rising costs. Um, you take a look at the average price for a one bedroom, two bedroom, and a lot of people have to make hard decisions, especially coming out of this pandemic or still ongoing pandemic where a lot of people lost their jobs. Uh, they had to you know, make some tough financial decisions. And so people, especially in the immigrant community, especially our members, CASA members, people that we work with a lot in the community are, are really having to make tough decisions on, on whether they have a place to live and whether they can afford 
uh, affordable housing in Montgomery County. Um, before we get into the march, there is an election coming up next year in Maryland, a gubernatorial election. And uh, last time around, it was, you know, the, the Republican, uh, who is your governor, was seen to be more moderate, not Trumpian. And a lot of Democrats didn't seem, you know, as as concerned with having him. What are the, and, and there's a lot of other like legislative issues in Maryland that make it sort of free reign for special interests to just take over your state. So what are like the implications of the political situation on housing? Uh, well, I think, I think this time around the, the pandemic has really, really put uh, priorities in, amongst amongst community members, right? Mm -hmm. um, and it has shifted. So, for example, in our organization, uh, priorities a lot of the, the top priorities for our members are uh, ensuring that they have access to healthcare, uh, but also, once again, it comes down to housing, ensuring that people still have a roof over their heads. So, mm -hmm. when it comes to the selection cycle, we're really looking for candidates uh, who really, really support affordable housing, who really support. Uh, the top progressive initiatives, you know, healthcare for all, and ensuring that um, that people just have, you know, money in their pockets to be able to to afford these to afford these necessities, basic necessities that we have. And so um, that's what we're really looking forward in in these upcoming candidates, a wave of candidates who are potentially running for that governor's seat. Um, all right. So you 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 did this. You had this march, and what was the goal of the march? The intention. Uh, you know, when, when you decided to lead this? Yeah, so we've actually had several marches, but um, uh, the, main, the main purpose of these marches is to ensure that Congress uh, passes the Build Back Better portion um, of, of the Biden administration's uh, agenda, right? And so I know that we they just recently passed in the House the Build Back Better portion uh, that has a lot of these social justice issues that are very important to our community. We're talking about climate justice, we're talking about immigration, we're talking about affordable housing, we're talking about healthcare for all, uh, paid leave. And so now what we're doing is we're really focusing on targeting Senate Democrats, right? Mm -hmm. Where the bill has been kicked over to the Senate and we are really pushing for them to really get this Build Back Better plan passed before Christmas. So mm -hmm. that way, a lot of the families across uh, Maryland, across the United States, a lot of our members can really enjoy the benefits of just having a life that is full of dignity and that, you know, that is affordable for everyone. And so uh, when we are out there marching, we're out there marching with people who have been impacted by these issues, but also will benefit from these issues. And, and we're just really, really urging for the Senate to, to get this done as soon as possible. Um, how, how are folks responding? I mean, I, I know that there's lots of pressure points for specific senators who are holding things up uh, or using, you know, lots of excuses to hold things up. But wh where are the pressure points that you're pushing right now? Like, wh who, who are you trying to push in the Senate and what is the specific message that you're trying to push? Well, we're really targeting the Senate leadership, right? Mm -hmm. uh, we know that we know that um, it's we have some obstacles that we're, we're that we're facing, uh, but we know that the Senate leadership can get it done. Uh, we're targeting Chuck Schumer um, and ensuring that he gets all the votes necessary to to get this uh, to get this this uh, Build Back Better plan passed. And so, ideally, we are really targeting everyone because it's going to take all the Senate Democrats to get this bill across, and obviously uh, the vote of the Vice President, but. 
um, you know, we are really looking to see what the, uh, the Senate parliamentarian says, especially when it comes to the part of the immigration. Uh, we know that she has, um, uh, we know that she has kicked back other proposals that we have had that really include a pathway to citizenship that many of our members and the millions of immigrants across this country deserve. And so we are hoping that she's willing to accept, even though that's not what they deserve, uh, this, this registry plan or this plan C, what we call, right? Uh, that adds parole to it. Uh, but we are really looking for every single Democrat, Senate Democrat to, to vote on this and to really uh, come through for the American people because that's what they ran their elections on and we are holding them accountable for that. When you watch Fox News, they have completely punted uh, the crisis at the border to Biden as if they didn't have any role in this. And, and you know, we're, we're aware of, I, for me on the show, at least is aware of the Obama administration's role in, in, uh, in border, you know, security and, and how, you know, the folks call him the deporter in chief, but without a doubt, it grew to absolute crises, um, horrifying humanitarian crises, the border under Trump. And I was reading, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I was reading something yesterday that I, I was actually very surprised um, that, and I don't think the Biden administration is doing a good job communicating this, that they have actually registered the majority and there, there's, I think, I mean, vast majority, 75% of, of those um, that have been held at the border and they're en route. And that was one of the big complaints is that, you know, it was just like a complete disaster to clean up the situation that Trump created in which, you know, separating families, not being able to track, you know, their babies and, and small children that were separate from their parents and may never see them again. And to be able to do this detective work all while there's a COVID crisis, all while there are folks who continue to come through. And then there's another crisis that happened in Haiti. And, you know, and so we saw what's been going on at the border, um, not to mention, of course, uh, DHS and and how the Border Patrol, um, uh, those images that came out of the Border Patrol members on horseback. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it's complicated, obviously, and 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 it's it is a humanitarian crisis. How is this impacting the work that you do and and how would you, I mean, if you feel comfortable, how would you rate how the Biden administration is dealing with the crisis at the border? Yeah, well, I mean, listen, um, when people come to this country, um, they're coming because they are escaping uh, violence from their country. Sometimes there's, um, <clears throat> you know, we have uh, natural disasters that bring them over um, and they're really looking for uh, us to be that beacon of hope, right? Um, to ensure that that they that they feel safe and that they start a life here in this country of opportunity that was uh, that was uh, funded on um, just immigrants from across the world. Mm -hmm. uh, we are we are pretty disappointed in the administration's uh, response on how they are on how they are handling the border and the aspect that you know they are that we still have that we're still seeing the images of how border police um, and I see that you have the video up right now, right? You know. Uh, whipping Haitian immigrants uh, that are trying to come over here. Um, we still see those footages of, of people jam-packed at those uh, border facilities. And so it makes a, it makes the job difficult. And, and we wish that the Biden administration, um, you know, held their word when they were running on the campaign saying that their goal was to close these detention centers. And, and, you know, have the process of um, accepting more asylum refugees and and restarting the process of really processing people who are coming over, um, and 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 just bringing them into the community. And so, 
Um, we are very disappointed in the process and how things have been handled. We obviously think that it could be handled a lot better. Um, and just in Maryland yesterday, just alone, right? Um, we're not waiting for the Biden administration to make moves, whether they can decide if they should be opening detention centers or not. Yesterday, Maryland passed two uh, huge immigration bills. One is called Dignity Not Detention, where it's going to prohibit ICE from having any detention centers in Maryland. Um, and another one is the uh, Driver's Maryland wow. Privacy Act, where um, ICE can no longer access database from um, government agencies, state government agencies, wow. especially the Motor Vehicle Administration. They will need a judicial warrant from a court. And even then, they still have to notify the delegation of when they're accessing this. So states like Maryland are already taking wow. measures to ensure that they are protecting immigrants who are being wow. abused by immigration and who are using tactics um, to lure people in and just everyday people who are drive, driving to work. We're not talking so, about criminals, but just everyday people right. who are doing everyday, <laughs> everyday things. So. so so this is interesting because, you know, I wouldn't expect Maryland to be at the forefront of that. Uh, how, how did this get passed? Like what was the, I mean, that's major coalition work. Yeah. I mean, we obviously had major coalition work, but um, the stories, the stories from community members, you know, the stories that that kept appearing. Um, in, in Montgomery County alone, we had two stories, two uh, stories that made national headlines and where a gentleman was cutting a tree and was detained by the Department of Natural Resources Police. Uh, despite <laughs> Montgomery County having its own sanctuary uh, uh, bill to protect um, immigrants from, from being asked immigration status, we still had state police agencies who were coming in uh, and they detained him and handed him over to ICE. And then just about a month later, um, ICE agents swarmed uh, a gentleman's house in the same vicinity, just five miles apart from each other, uh, using the information that they got from the database, the MBA database, to locate him. And oh so goodness. this really just came out of the stories that's, that kept popping up and the community came together. Uh, we lobbied really hard for the last two years um, CASA members shared their stories, and we really put a lot of pressure on the delegation to say, hey, look, listen, this is happening in Maryland. We need these protections. These are everyday working people who who just want to go to work, you know, and who are stuck in limbo because our immigration system is just so, so out of line and so dysfunctional that they have no pathway forward to citizenship, which is why we're really pushing to ensure that in this Build Back Better plan, uh, that there is a pathway to citizenship because many people deserve that. It's, it's amazing that you were able to to pass that. Um, I, you know, my final question just related to that subject is once folks are put through the registration, the registry and processed um, at the border and given refugee status and and they come to Maryland, what what's next? I mean, how do people find housing? How do they find community? I mean, it's, it's, it's just from start to finish, when someone leaves their home, you know, say they come from Guatemala, I, I met somebody this year who went through this entire process and he told me step by step along the way um, about how he he had to take out a loan in Guatemala from uh, essentially a loan shark. And mm -hmm. it, it's he's going to be paying it off. I mean, to us, it wouldn't seem like a lot of money, but but based on uh, you know, the, the, the wages in Guatemala, he is going to be paying off this loan for 10 years. So he takes out the loan and then he has to get through, he wasn't from Guatemala city. He 
uh, lived near Lecatitlan. And so he had to go through Guatemala to get to the border and then get to Mexico and then go through Mexico. And there are several stops along the way and, you know, houses where he has to stay with hundreds of people, sometimes thousands. And then he finally, and it's dangerous, the coyotes are not like the nicest people and neither mm -hmm. are the people who they're with. He told me about the fights that would break out between, you know, a Mexican thinking he was higher up than a Guatemalan and then a Guatemalan thinking he was higher up than an Ecuador. It was, it was insane mm -hmm. to hear about the the dynamics and then he got to the border um and uh you know was kept at the border and then they moved him to another facility and then he went uh to west texas i believe and then that is when um and they were in this truck they could barely breathe in the truck underneath the, the boards of the truck you know like packed like sardines totally inhumane barely could breathe one guy was having an asthma attack and they pull him over and that's when they detain him and then once they detain him he's under the trump administration they put him, um, they take him to a, a a house where he stayed, barely could sleep, squished together like this, you know, way too many people for one room. And he was there for like a few days and he was being fed like an egg in the morning, like something very small for, for lunch. Then they took him to a, this is the part that really killed me out of everything because I'd mm. never heard this before. They took him to a worker's camp. Mm. That's my description. This is mm. ICE. And ICE took him to this camp and said, we're going to send you back to Guatemala, but you have to earn the money that we're going to hand you once we drop you off. And you get, I think it was $1 or $2 a day. And so for seven days, he farmed. And he said that they lined him up before that. They lined them up with shackles around their neck, their wrists, and their ankles. And I, I tell the story over and over because I don't think people really understand what is happening. So say you're able to you know, that's just that process. And he was sent back to Guatemala. But if you are able to get through, and then you make it to Maryland, now you got to find housing. You know, maybe there are family members there. Maybe there's work. Maybe there's not. How does anybody navigate, especially if there's language issues? How does anybody navigate? Yeah, I mean, it's 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 a difficult process, right? And and once again, that's one of the reasons why we passed Dignity Not Detention in Maryland because uh, ICE detention centers. Uh, if you've ever been to one, it's just a very very. Nothing prepares you to see what's happening, right? And that's just what we can see. I can only imagine what's happening behind the scenes. Uh, and But yeah, I mean, a lot of people come over here with nothing, absolutely nothing. They get through that whole scenario. Um, and so they come to Maryland. So what's next, right? Well, luckily, we have a lot of organizations in Maryland uh, that can help out with that process, right? That organizations like CASA that can really help, you know, establish getting you an ID and perhaps connecting you to affordable housing programs that can get you started. Um, and that's why it's important that we really set protections for a lot of immigrants. Because imagine coming to Maryland and then not able to have, you know, those protections, you know, not able to, uh, to find funds for affordable housing. Um, in Montgomery County alone, uh, Montgomery County passed a lot of pieces of legislation that really gave uh, legislation, excuse me, uh, funds uh, to a lot of people in the undocumented community. Uh, mm -hmm. Funds that are not available unless you have some sort of permanent status. Funds, for example, we had a, our, our uh, Montgomery County had a version of a stimulus check that went out to families who were undocumented. We have a mm -hmm. rental assistance program that families can apply for if they fall behind on rent or if they even need assistance when it comes to rent. Right. Um, and so there's a lot of good programs out there in Maryland. Um, and that was only made possible because our community members have fought because they have experienced firsthand what it was like 
mm-hmm. such as in the in the story that you that you were talking about um, about this individual, where they came over and they had absolutely nothing. In Maryland, we have driver's licenses for people who were also undocumented. So the first thing is just really going to a state like Maryland that has all these protections and all these available resources. But at the end of the day. Uh, what's really going to help a lot of people is ensuring that they have some sort of pathway to citizenship and are able to establish some sort of permanent residency here. So that way they can apply for even bigger programs to give them more financial assistance. So that way they can apply for jobs where, you know, the wages are 10 times better. And so that way they can even apply for, for schools so that way they can increase their level of education and just have so many more opportunities and doors open up to them. And so that's why we are really pushing for this Build Back Better plan um, mm-hmm. to ensure that everyone, everyone in this country, especially right. our immigrant communities, have available resources. So that way they don't go to a state and then say, what's next? So that way they have available resources to take advantage of. And, you know, and for those, I'm not sure they'd be watching our show, but for those who are like concerned about, well, you know, uh, we can't afford it. Well, guess what? You're You're going to pay for it somehow. And it's it's going to come out of of the budget somehow. You know, would you want to take the humane path or do you want to take the inhumane path? And I think, you know, it's it's preventative measures by supporting as many people as possible in their pathway to living, you know, a a a healthy, uh, you know, wonderful life in this country. And let's not forget, the majority of small businesses are owned by immigrants, so there is an investment. Our immigrant community. I mean, this is the country that we live in. It's what we, you know, quote unquote, we, we're our legacy is, I guess, um, you know, some of our legacy, <laughs> leaving out other parts, but at least the immigrant side, uh, you know, the, the Ellis Island narrative, you know, this is a big part of of who we claim to be and we might as well follow up through it. So Alex, I appreciate you. Thank you for joining us today. Good luck. Keep us updated. Hope to have you on again very soon. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. We will be right back to talk about what it means to not have a bo- – like, is the future of jobs no bosses? I mean, maybe they'll all be in space, so sounds great. <laughs> maybe? Be right back. All right, welcome back. Well, I start off the show talking about how we need more creative solutions to our problems because it's just not working. The traditional means are not working. Joe Manchin's not listening to us. Elon Musk's not listening to us. So what is it going to take? What is it going to actually take to transform 
circumstances rapidly so that working people, indigenous people, immigrants right now, so the entire country is sustained so the next generation and this generation can survive. Well, our next guest, Michael Albert, is the author of No Bosses, A New Economy for a Better World. Quite brilliant. Michael, thanks for joining the show. Thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate it. All right. So I love the idea of no. First off, the, the, the book cover is beautiful too. Um, you know, published by Zero Burr Books, uh, at front of the show. Your preface is Noam Chomsky and Yanni Varoufakis. Happy birthday, Noam Chomsky! Yesterday, by the way, uh, quite a you know quite a preface. Uh, also friends of the show. So you know, is this going to be? Are we going to be like having marches for no bosses? How do we do this? Well, there's two different questions. How do we get there mm -hmm. and where are we going? Um, the book is about a place to go. In other words, the book is about a vision for, for a future situation. It's only uh, to a very small extent about issues associated with how to get there. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm happy to talk about either one, but if, if we're talking about the book, it would be, uh, you know, the vision, the, the new economy. And the new economy, uh, we call it participatory economics. Some people call it participatory socialism. Mm -hmm. it's, uh, it's not a blueprint where, you know, everything is laid out and you then sort of like a blueprint for a building and you build it and you stick to the guidelines. Right. It's nothing like that. It's literally five key features, each of which we think is essential if a new economy is going to be consistent with our values, self-management, solidarity, diversity, sustainability, and equity. Um, and so we make a case for each of these five features. And then as far as a new economy, the process of, of winning it, the process of developing uh, will add many details uh, that we learn through experience. So just, you know, 30,000 foot, uh, you know, analysis. If, if we're to look at say a union and how a union, um, organizes, I'm not saying how they, cause obviously the unions don't run businesses. They're, they're part of businesses, the labor, um, but how they organize. I mean, there is, let's pick the, the, you know, the most militant unions, the trade unions that, that we've seen, you know, in, in American history, even then, there's still leadership and there's still a union president. How are you able to, especially, you know, um, at a job, how are you able to make, ensure that everybody is acting out of solidarity, everybody is, you know, doing their part and, and is, I mean, especially yeah. if, if there's a workforce that's not experienced, younger workforce that may not necessarily know the path, like the the... The, the way to conduct yourself. I mean, when you first mm -hmm. join the workforce, there's a lot of things you learn. So how do you ensure that? These are, these are all um, the kinds of questions that I and Robin Hanel, when we were thinking about this initially a long time ago, um, asked ourselves. They're exactly the right kinds of questions to ask. If you're going to say that you can't have private ownership, you can't have Bezos owning Amazon and so on and so forth. You can't have people owning the means by which we live. Mm -hmm. um, well, okay, that raises an immediate question. In a workplace, if you don't have an owner, who's deciding things? Mm -hmm. So the answer for us um, in thinking it through was, 
oh, we don't want there to be a strata of people who are deciding everything above everybody else. So the answer has to be the workforce. The answer has to be that the workforce is deciding and the workforce needs an instrument by which to decide decide things. And that's typically called a uh, workers' council. But now your, com- your, your question comes in. Okay, fine. So we say workers are going to make the decisions. What's to, I mean, you know, hello? In, in the world we understand, in the world we know now, workers are not inclined to even want to make decisions. Mm-hmm. They're not necessarily prepared. They don't have the information. They don't have the confidence. They don't have, so why is that? And therefore, what do we have to change for that not to be the case? And the answer that we felt strongly as we thought more and more about it, I mean, partly it has to do with things that go before the workplace, your upbringing and your schooling and so on. But set that aside for a minute. Inside the workplace, in capitalism, the economy we endure, and in what was called 20th century socialism, Mm -hmm. the Soviet economy, Mm -hmm. the division of labor looks almost identical. You have about 20% of the workforce doing jobs that are empowering, jobs which, at least to a considerable degree, give the person doing it information, confidence, connections to others, access to daily decision-making, and so on. And 80% of the jobs are the opposite. They're disempowering. They literally reduce workers' skill, reduce workers' knowledge of the overall situation, reduce connections to others, eliminate access to daily decision-making. And so what you have is that the, the phenomenon that we see, that workers don't seem disposed to participate in decisions um, or prepared to, is not intrinsic. It's not innate. It's not something biological. It's the result of a particular division of labor. Hmm. So if we want a new economy and we want workers to be running the show in their workplaces, we have to get rid of the old division of labor, not just private ownership. And that means that we have to combine tasks into jobs in a new way such that all jobs are comparably empowering of the people who are doing them. And then people are prepared. Is this is this sort of a another approach to nationalizing uh, the you know well at least major industries you know that we say say Facebook or Amazon or something um, you know these with these big bad guy bosses that have taken over the world and really shifted the way that we function um, is this sort of an alternative to nationalizing it Yes, it's it's an alternative to getting beyond capital, getting beyond private ownership, but retaining a new boss in place of the old boss, where the new boss, instead of being a relatively, you know, a small number of big, rich owners, is about 20% of the population. Mm -hmm. And that's what we had in the old Soviet Union and in various other countries. We got rid of owners, but we still had a very alienated, undignified, um, uh, top-down bossed around workforce and a group on top of that. So this is a way to try and uh, change from uh, the current situation to a new non-capitalist situation, which, however, avoids 
uh, it literally rules out uh, the the structures that cause old experiments of that sort to be highly compromised. Can yeah. I tell you one story? Of course, that, yeah. Okay. So years back in uh, Argentina, there was a, um, an economic crisis, and it was so bad that a lot of capitalists decided to just leave their workplaces. Hmm. Um, the, the, they became dysfunctional, they became not profitable, and the capitalists decided to move on and just threw in the towel, not hmm. because of political pressure, not because of movements, but because the thing was failing. And a lot of managers and engineers and uh, financial officers and so on looked at the situation and said, yikes, without the owner, we're doomed, so we're going to move on too. Hmm. So the workforces were left with the building, with the equipment, wow. and without the owners, and without most of, almost all of, what I call the coordinator class, the manager. So the workers took over because they didn't have any place to go. Mm-hmm. And so I was in Argentina and giving a, I was supposed to give a talk to a set of representatives from factories that had been occupied in that way. There were about 50 representatives there, roughly speaking. And at the beginning of the meeting, we go around the room and everybody's very animated and excited. These people have taken over their workplaces. They've taken over their lives and they're meeting people from distant parts of the country who have done similarly. Mm-hmm. We go around the room with people introducing themselves. And after... A very few minutes, um, the mood is changing. It's becoming quieter and then depressed. And by the time we get to the seventh person, and I remember because it made such an impression, um, by the time we get to the seventh person, the guy says, you know, I never thought I would say anything like this. I can't imagine that I would have ever said anything like this. But maybe Margaret Thatcher was right. Oh my maybe gosh. there Maybe there is no alternative, right? And so what he was saying and what the people before had been saying was we took over, we instituted a workers' council, we instituted democracy to an extent we even instituted self-management, meaning people having a say in decisions in proportion to the degree that they're affected. Mm -hmm. We pretty much equalized rages, made some exceptions for good reasons, and now all the old crap's coming Sorry. Now all the old. Uh, all right. Now all the old crap is coming back. Crap is okay. <laughs> okay. Now all the old crap is coming back. Um, it just it's it's getting alienated again. Incomes are dispar- are, are are moving apart, um, etc. And I said, and and you feel like that's just human nature at work. Hmm. And they said yes. And I said, well. Let's just explore for a minute one other possibility. When you took over the workplace and you made it democratic and you fixed the wages and you did all these things, what did you do about the job structure? What did you do about the old jobs? And they said, well, we had to fill them. We, we learned how to, you know. And I said, so you didn't change them at all? No. Interesting. And they sort of didn't understand the question at first because they thought, you know, that's like saying, did you you know, did you change the air? It's the way it is, right? Mm -hmm. So it didn't occur to them to change it. And then I made a case that that was the root of the problem, not human nature. That that what was happening is they kept an old institution, and that old institution has certain implications, and those implications were swamping all the good things that they had done. Uh, And 
You know, I think you can see that in many co-ops and in many other circumstances, and you can also see it in whole countries like the Soviet Union. Yeah, oh, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting as you're describing that, I'm thinking about, uh, you know, organizations, progressive organizations who fall sure. into the same, tac- you know, habits uh, that, that other organizations, you know, more establishment organizations fell into because the actual, like, like the way that the organization operates was not shifted. Um, yeah. And simultaneously we see it, you know, in, in many other spaces as well. It's like, or even the media space, you know? Yeah. Uh, and it's we, not a matter of bad faith. In other right. words, the, none of those workers in the Argentine factories wanted the outcome they got. Right. But they effectively made a mistake. You know, they right. didn't know to change that that one circumstance, and, and, it, and they paid a price for it. Right. Um, yeah. And uh, it's sort of analogous to if you keep the owner. You know, if you say you want freedom and you want justice and you want equity and you want, but you keep the owner, well, you're in trouble. Same idea, right? There was this, I'm going to use, I hate to bring him up and I might get in trouble for it, but there was this joke that uh, Chappelle made, Dave Chappelle made in his last very famous comedy special. But he talked about how the first man, and there's a movie now being um, uh, done on this, the first man to be uh, liberated when uh you know when when slavery was announced he didn't even know he was liberated but then he found out and then what is what does he do as a black man who is a former slave he becomes a slave owner he goes out yeah. there and he brings in slaves and it's because no one that was all that was known and so you know whether it's gender equity space or any other liberation you have to change the conditions you have to change the yeah. way you know, the way the conditions operate, I guess, yeah. um, to be able to be truly liberated. Otherwise, yeah. you're falling into the same habits. There used to be an old joke in the United States that the worst boss to have was an old IWW member. And the reason was because the IWW member, of course, understood everything about, you know, about the, the class struggle, about people interacting, about striking and so on and so forth. And as boss, he now had to operate in a new fashion and he was very good at it. So that was, but I mean, it's not that we're ciphers and that we automatically become, you know, that we have no will of our own. It's not that, but it is that if you're in a situation over and over for a long period of time, it does affect you and it does constrain your choices. So it's conditioning. Uh, that's what, and pressure, right? you know, actual right. pressure. And that's what... Uh, that part of participatory economics is about. So, I mean, covering ground quickly, uh, get rid of the owners, treat, treat productive assets, treat, treat workplaces, resources, even skills and knowledge as a commons, um, not privately owned. Have workers' councils and also consumers' councils, because some consumption is private, but some is collective. Um, so have that also. And then you have to have this new division of labor. And uh, we call it balanced jobs or balanced job complexes. Um, and that one becomes controversial among a lot of people because it does mean, in other words, what, what, we're, what we're saying is consider a hospital. If surgery is an empowering job, which I think it is, so if it's an empowering job in a new situation with a different division of labor, somebody doesn't do only surgery. They do a mix of things, which is comparably empowering to the mix of things other people do. So somebody also doesn't only clean bedpans. Of course, there's learning involved. There's time involved. 
And the criticism that some will make is to say, I like what you're saying ethically. You know, I, I like it. But let's get real. Most people can't do these kinds of activities. That's what people will say. And then, so they'll say, in pursuit of classlessness, you are sacrificing productivity mm. so much that it outweighs the benefits. Mm. In that same Argentine situation, I'm sitting in a workplace that had been taken over. I'm talking to a woman who had previously worked at an open furnace. It was a glass factory. And uh, so she spent all day doing essentially the same motions over and over in front of this furnace. And I did go and see it, and I would have lasted maybe 20 minutes. <laughs> and she, it was her life, right? Her life, yeah. So they took over the workplace, and they're sitting around. And remember, the coordinator class left. So they got to mm -hmm. do something about somebody keeping track of things, uh, being the financial officer, so to speak. <laughs> and she volunteered. So she became it. And Notice, they kept the old job. So she volunteered. She became it. And I'm talking to her, and I said, what was the hardest thing to learn? You know, what, what, what was the most difficult thing for you to become good at in order to be able to do this job? And meanwhile, now the factory is succeeding, where before, with the experts and the owners, it was failing. And she doesn't want to answer. She's a little, you know, I guess embarrassed. Or... So I said, well, was it learning to use a spreadsheet? She said, no. I said, was it learning accounting concepts? No. Was it learning how to, and I came up with two or three more things. And then I sort of just threw up my hands and said, I don't, what was it? And she said to me, first, I had to learn to read. Oh my goodness. Wow. And so the, the myth that the, re, that the reason why working class people don't do, don't do work, don't do activity in the workplace that is uh, empowering, that involves skills, that involves conception and so on. The myth that that's, that that's, you know, genetic is no more intelligent than the myth that women didn't do it right. or blacks didn't do it because of genetic reasons. Right. It's a function of the structure of society and the way people are treated and and denied and mm -hmm. relegated and so on and uh mm -hmm. so that criticism i think bites the dust and then and then we have those those features there's one or two more features um but but we're sort of making quick progress <laughs> so so um in the last you know a couple of minutes here can you help us understand is it all at once? Is it workplace by workplace? Like where, where's the path? What's the pathway to a so, uh, new economy for a better, better world? That's called transition. There's still mm -hmm. things like remuneration. How do people get income and how much and, and allocation, but I, right. I guess running out of time. So that's a perfectly reasonable que question. Um, I, there's no single answer to that, right? That's called strategy and mm -hmm. transition. And there really is no single answer to that. So, for instance, right now, somebody could start a firm or could transform an existing firm by introducing balanced jobs, by introducing mm -hmm. self-managed decision-making, and you'd have something that's sort of planting the seeds of the future in the present. 
it would be in the midst of markets and in the midst of profit seeking. It's not a whole new economy, but you could be doing that. Likewise, you can be fighting for a much higher uh, um, uh, minimum wage or fighting for uh, transparency or fighting for and so on. Mm -hmm. uh, so as these movements proceed, you get to a point where it's possible for more and more workplaces and even more important, more and more of the population to share a vision and to share a commitment to it and to fight for it. And, uh, you know, I, I, it would be a lie to say that we can know in advance exactly what that will look like. But I think we can know a few things. So one thing, for example, is people get all up in arms on the left about reform and being reformist. All right. Right. Oh, I know. Okay. So, <laughs> so then they're done that. <laughs> it's, it doesn't make any sense for the following reason. First of all, Fighting for things now is fighting for reforms, unless you're fighting for the whole damn thing overnight. And nobody is. So when you fight for higher wages or for better conditions or for uh, constraints on the market to try and save the planet, you're fighting for reforms. Fighting for reforms is where lots and lots and lots of people learn not only what's wrong with society, but what would be better. And, and, and the skills, you know, too. So yeah, that when and, the revolution and, comes, you're ready. <laughs> Absolutely. But reformism is something that has a problem to it, and that's fighting for a change and seeing the change as the end, as the goal, and you fight for it, you win it if you do, and you go home. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that's reformism. Uh, but you don't have to fight for reforms that way. You can fight for reforms. You can fight for a $15 minimum wage trying to organize in such a way as to arouse desires for $25 minimum wage or for, instead of a minimum wage, remuneration for duration, intensity, and onerousness of socially valuable labor, which is what participatory economics says. But the point is, you can constantly be fighting in a way to create the conditions to continue. Right. And that's not reformism. That, so I think we can say confidently that'll be part of the process kind of approach to winning change. I also think we can say confidently that if we're going to win something like participatory economics, our movements are going to reflect those values and our movements are going to operate in accord with that kind of conception. Otherwise, it's hypocrisy. Otherwise, it is instead of planting the seeds of the future, you're planting the seeds of the past or you're planting the seeds of a different future that you don't want. So we can say things like that and more, um, and, but and I, sure I do feel, and it's why I did the book No Bosses and have done other stuff like that, that it's powerfully important to have a vision, to have the inspiration that comes from it, the orientation that comes from it, the hope that comes from it. Those things matter to, to being active in a sustained way. Michael, this is this is fascinating. Would love to have you back on. Um, I would love to anytime <laughs> dive in a little bit more about like solidarity and how to make sure that there's no infighting along the way because you know that's a common thing. Indeed, uh, that is we are humans, and I feel like that's a little human nature <laughs> in a sense. Well, uh, yeah, but uh, I'd be happy to come back and talk about that. It's it's on my mind also. <laughs> Thank you, Michael Albert. Uh, check out the book No Bosses Zero Zero Books. 
uh, check it out right now. And and I'm I'm gonna follow up with a lot of questions. So the next time we have you on, I'm sure we'll have more from our from our uh, audience as well. Michael, thank you so much, and happy holidays. I'd be happy to relate to both. Wonderful. Thank you. <laughs> Take care. We will be right back to talk with our panel. Lots of interesting news. Uh, very excited to announce that there's been progress in the war on Christmas. You want to hear all about that very soon. Stick around. Clash momentarily for class solidarity. Cash circulating, give the masses back its currency. Greed from elites, oligarchs, stay fed, deep state, faith fed. Everybody break bread. Racism, homophobia, sexism, religion in this melted body. Living time to build a new system, unionize labor rights. Highlight the issue, talking heads left his best. The saga continues, continues. The no Mickey show. The No Mickey Show. The No Mickey Show. The No Mickey Show. For class solidarity, cash circulating, give the masses back. Oh, hey, we know that voice. That's Napoleon DeLegend, and he actually happens to be with us today. Very exciting panel. Uh, welcome back. We have Napoleon DeLegend, hip hop artist, Brooklyn based, always traveling the world, speaking mul multiple languages. Uh, just saw him post a clip of himself in a documentary like 10 years ago. That was cute to see young Napoleon. Um, that's on your Instagram. And we have Rose Adams, who is a political reporter who has been with The Intercept and uh, covered New York City politics and news at the Brooklyn Paper and AM New York. We got some New York news today, so I'm excited to have you guys on. All right, let's just start off with what I find 
like I don't know why I've I've looked at this picture like nine thousand times and I've never but I've I just think it's the funniest thing in the world and I know people are coming after me saying I'm pro arson but Jesus Christ like Fox News the war on Christmas has come for them <laughs> let's post this just something to laugh about oh look it the tree in front of Fox News is on fire uh, supposedly I think it's two men now have been apprehended for lighting the Christmas tree on fire. You know, it's dangerous because there's glass, you know, on there and they pop and explode and it's like shrapnel. Uh, but it's also really funny. So two things can be true at once. <laughs> I'm not really here to ask you your thoughts about it. I just wanted to laugh. But if you have any thoughts on the tree being on fire okay. and the war on Christmas, please. I kind of feel bad laughing about it, but it's just making me laugh seeing that, that image for some reason. I guess it's God's fury <laughs> yeah. getting back to Christmas too. Yeah. Well, like the funniest part is I'm looking at my Instagram and I, I get these trolls basically who've seen me on Fox News or other like conservatives that I've, you know, debated in the past who are like, I can't believe you'd be pro arson. I'm like, I can't believe you don't defend, you know, when black men are killed. How about that? Unreal. Okay. Anyways. Well, uh, obviously God doesn't approve his Fox News right now. It's burning Christmas trees. You know, but they're gonna they're gonna pivot and they're gonna say it's the war on Christmas. It's right. There. I mean, I would be surprised if they did it. That's how wow. long term. I mean, the Koch brothers probably had this plan like 20 years ago. They're like redistricting, abortion rights, <laughs> immigration, and the war on Christmas. It's a false flag event. <laughs> all right, they're gonna be riots tomorrow. You know they're gonna say that the riots on the street all over the war on Christmas. <laughs> well, anyways, uh, shifting gears a little bit, I do want to talk a little bit about serious stuff. Well, that is serious, but so um, Mayor De Blasio, we're gonna to touch on De Blasio quite a bit right now because for for many reasons. But Mayor De Blasio, in his final month as mayor. Uh, has announced vaccine mandates for private companies. So right now, if you are a, a public employee, if you are an employee of the city um, or the government, you must be vaccinated. And and as a result, <laughs> shocker, there were all these protests by pr primarily NYPD members who don't live in the city um, because they refused to get vaccinated. And he decided to up it and just say, let's go for it. And you know, I have I have opinions on why he did it so aggressively, but um, you know, there's questions about whether or not this is constitutional. That's great, cool. But by the time they fight that off, we may have actually thwarted having another round of, of um, you know, crazy super spreaders. Rose, what do you think about this move? I think it's a good move. I mean, I, you know, at this point too, it's been a, a while since there have been mandates for city workers and since you basically have had to have a vaccine in order to exist and like, interact with the city um you know you have to have show proof of vaccination every time you basically go into any most establishments especially restaurants so it's not something that i think is very foreign to new yorkers um i mean i'm also not super in tap with the very anti-vax cohort uh, minority that's still uh, resisting <laughs> that but um to me, it seems like a kind of natural next step, uh, and I think it makes sense to do it now. I mean, it would have been too, it would have been too fast. I think last year to do it, but it's been it's been some time, and it's not like having vaccinations to other diseases is anything foreign. I mean, we all are vaccinated against, you know, those 
those, you know, smallpox. So I think that this yeah. it's time to, it's all to, it's time to kind of bring that to COVID too. Um, let's play this clip of how uh, Mayor de Blasio responded on MSNBC. I mean, he's, he is who he is. Let's just roll it. As of today, we're going to announce a first in the nation measure. Our health commissioner will announce a vaccine mandate for private sector employers across the board. All private sector employers in New York City will be covered by this vaccine mandate as of December 27th. We're going to have some other measures as well to really focus on maximizing vaccination quickly so we can get ahead of Omicron and all mm -hmm. the other challenges we're facing right now with COVID. And the response from restaurant uh, restaurants has been, they're not happy. Um, let's there's this, there's an article up about that right now about how restaurant owners are they think that he rushed you know rolled it out too fast rushed it. I mean, my perspective on this is is as a New Yorker, we we've all lived in New York. Um, I am a little concerned by how many restaurant employees don't wear masks inside. Uh, I am concerned that they barely look at your vaccine card, and I'm concerned with the percentage of people who are using fake vaccine cards. I get that, like, the more people vaccinated, the better, the more measures to restrict, the better. But these, like, these, like, small business fights as we're going into a new administration, I think are, are, are planting the seeds for much bigger fights uh, that, that Eric Adams is going to want to differentiate himself from de Blasio on. And, and I worry that Eric Adams being sort of a wild card will definitely want to side with small business. will definitely want to side with real estate, but the result, I think the consequences are going to be horrible for turning the city around. Um, you know, Napoleon, you, you, you live in Brooklyn, you know, what's going on in Brooklyn, you know, how rapidly everything's gentrified and become completely, uh, unaffordable and, and income inequality has only grown under Poverty has been reduced, but income inequality has grown under de Blasio. Um, do you think that Eric Adams is, is I mean, we, we're actually weirdly on a good path, but de Blasio is just like not the best spokesperson for it. Yeah, I, I think, I, I mean, I anticipated all, all these to be reversed, you know, as soon as he comes in, just, just for him to, for Eric Adams to try to score some political points with, like you said, the, the small businesses and the, the real estate people and things like that, because He's going to have pressure from people telling them that, you know, he's killing business when the flip side of the coin is a lot of people feel more comfortable going to these establishments exactly. when there are like stricter rules. But people never mention that that part. Mm -hmm. They want to mention the other the other part, which I think is is the, the loud minority in that case. But I, I, I don't I'm not sure, but I, I anticipate um, him trying to reverse these things like pretty quickly. Rose, are you aware of the. Has Adams? I know he's in Ghana right now on a on a spiritual trip. Um, not he has a right to go on vacation after after a uh, a well fought you know campaign. But is Adams? Has he said he's going to reverse this? Is he is he supportive of these vaccine measures? I'm I'm not aware of any any statements he's made coming forward. But I think it is interesting in terms of him maybe reversing it. Um, you know, he's not beholden to this same sort of history that de Blasio is and de Blasio has always had to fight the fact that he did not react quickly enough to COVID early on and did not take it seriously enough early on and didn't close schools early. And that got so much flack for that. I mean, early 2020, most of 2020, 
he was seen as like the ineffective mayor that failed to prevent the tragedy in New York City in, you know, April and March um, and June last in 2020. And so he's, I think we're, I'm going to, I see this sort of mandate as sort of an extension of his reaction to that um, and that press and that, that truth that he just didn't do enough early on. So he's constantly trying to make up for that. And you see that in all these vaccine mandates and, you know, his, I think his much better policies in 2021 that have kept COVID down in New York city, but Eric Adams doesn't have, he doesn't have that sort of baggage that he needs to, uh, you know, prove himself other, you know, prove himself in any way that that kind of de Blasio de Blasio is now. And also being at the beginning of your tenure, I think we're seeing some bolder moves from de Blasio because he's sort of a lame duck. He's not mm. really worried about being popular among, you know, different, he's already been unpopular for years. So <laughs> there, Eric Adams is kind of has, want, is going to want to please a lot of people um, in different camps. So he's probably not going to be as concerned with uh, strict COVID policy. Um, it's interesting you say that because there's, I want to talk about the legacy of, of, de Blasio, and he is a fascinating figure when you look at his term, but you say he's not as popular. And in favorability, right, he's not as popular. But Eric Adams has, I mean, sorry, excuse me, uh, Mayor de Blasio has far more votes than Eric Adams ever received. You know, this was this was not a plurality by any, I mean, it was, but like it was, it, this was ranked choice voting. It was complicated. There were a lot of candidates, but Mayor de Blasio won the first time and the second time, overwhelmingly so. Um, you know, last one was the lowest turnout election in the history of New York City. And we have low elect low turnout elections in New York City in terms of, of mayoral races. So this is this was not a mandate, is what I should say. But yeah. Eric Adams seems to be running around like he was the chosen one. And and the thing that Eric Adams also won't face, which we can't forget de Blasio faced, is this war with Andrew Cuomo. I mean, it's just for those of you who weren't following, like the last eight years was basically the Andrew and 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 uh, and Bill De Blasio like fight fest all day long. Bill De Blasio would say something, and then Andrew Cuomo would fight him back or try to take credit, and 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 it did stall a lot of progress in this city, and maybe even drowned out some of the progress that was achieved under the De Blasio administration. He wasn't perfect. There are a lot of factors. He's also not great at messaging stuff. But at the end of the day, you know, when you're looking back at history and what was passed and what wasn't, do we think that de Blasio is really going to look worse than, say, I don't know, Rudy Giuliani or uh, Michael Bloomberg? Napoleon, what do you think? I, I, I mean, looking back, I, I, I did, you know, read the retrospect. I, I think that I don't think he's going to be looked at as worse because he did do a few good things and sometimes maybe maybe kind of reluctantly with certain things or or did things halfway but uh when it comes to affordable housing when it comes to a lot of environmental stuff like bike lanes and the fair fairs and things like that th these are positive things that i think people that that could be credited to him whether directly or indirectly and um did he do enough and did, did he do as what exactly what he promised no but uh, I, I do think I, I do think that he'll probably be looked at a little bit more positively than than these other guys. I, I think what was most disappointing is him not really holding like the the NYPD accountable or you know the, the police force accountable and and kind of cowering to that tough lobby. I, I felt like he he sh he should have showed more leadership in that in that sense. But overall, I mean, he did do a few things that 
that we need to be credited if we were honest, you know? I mean, they doxed the NYPD, uh, or I should say the union, doxed his daughter. I mean, there that to me was, was I mean, I, I remember making a joke being like, what do they have on de Blasio? And then the next day they doxed his daughter. And, you know, if, if you can't do anything after that, it it's, you know, it's, I don't want to say it's a deep state, but it's, they clearly have a lot of power over the city. And, and so many of the members of the NYPD aren't from the city. So Rose, I mean, let's, you can do a scorecard, but what do you think some of the, the, the greatest successes of the de Blasio administration and then, and then the, uh, you know, the failures or the weaknesses of his administration? Yeah, I think, I mean, first of all, I totally agree that I think it's going to, it's going to be one of those mayoralities that is, I think, going to be remembered better than it felt at the time. And I think partly because of it sort of ending on a positive note. I mean, he won the Cuomo battle. That is a <laughs> big time. <laughs> no one would have seen that coming a year ago, that he right. won the Cuomo battle after losing it for all those years. Uh, but I guess in terms of his, um, in terms of his sort of pluses and minuses, I mean, he did universal pre-K that 100% doing that early really, um, really helped, uh, I think, bolster his re-election campaign. I mean, that's something Can you explain that, what that is for folks who may not know? Yeah, familiar? so he, he basically made free pre-K for all, you know, New York City. And, you know, there's obviously public school and that starts in kindergarten, but before there wasn't a free option for, for preschool. And so he just, he just um, you know, he, he allowed there to be a, a, pre, a preschool option, which seems like a, I mean, it's just a great, a very necessary thing. I mean, working families, they there's not usually a stay-at-home parent or they can't afford to have childcare for a kid that's, you know, three or four years old before they can start kindergarten. So that that is something that affected tons of families. That was a great policy. And I think that that really helped propel him forward. Uh, but he also did a lot, I think, for immigrants and immigration. Um, you know, he had IDNYC, so all immigrants mm -hmm. can have all, you know, whether or not they're documented can have, um, can get a, an official government ID. Um, and they can use that, and you know, it's it's a little bit symbolic, but I think it is kind it is helpful in that um, you know it's kind of a something that can be uh, an official sort of ID that kind of can obscure you know whatever documentation they have or don't have, um, and can be used for in government settings. And so he he's done things like that um, that I I think you know are very positive progressive goals. Um, and so I think in terms of policy, it's mostly it's there's nothing that you can point to except for, you know, the lack of action in the NYPD last summer. Like that was definitely bad. But I think and also just, you know, his inability to really rein in the NYPD in any regard and trying to appease them, even though that never worked. It was always so funny how he always wanted to be on the side of the PBA and they were always rebuking him. So it was all he was trying to please too many people um, for a lot of his candidacy, but or a lot of his um uh, mayorship. But um, I think the, really the failure is messaging uh, that, like you've said, like that was just his whole demeanor um, was really off-putting to people. And I think the tabloids just latched onto that. Um, and so I think it's interesting. The media narrative is so, it, it, it's, it's, it's important to remember that the tab, like the two daily papers in New York, neither are pr particularly progressive. One's very conservative. And those are the ones that have really shaped the kind of dialogue around him and have focused on the fact Rightfully so, arguably, right. that he would go to the Y all the time instead of working, that he showed up hours late to meetings, that he worked two or three hours or something in the month of July during his presidential campaign. I mean, he just was a PR disaster, PR explosion. Um, 
And so I think it's easy to focus on those things rather than, you know, policy achievements. Um, and that's, that's where it got, it got tricky. I've, I've, so I was, um, when I was at TYT, this was in 2017, I believe, or no, maybe it was 18, 2018. Um, and I didn't know I was the first one and, and maybe even the only reporter to ever be able to be granted an entire day with Mayor de Blasio. And I followed him around for the day and we had private moments and I got to go to meetings and it was really a, a pretty incredible experience, you know, just for any mayor, to, a largest city in the country to have that, that access. And also just, you know, there's these like little quieter moments where you're, you see him talking to Shirlane or picking up the phone and talking to his kids and, you know, and it wasn't on camera. I, what I found, there were a lot of things I found fascinating, but I asked him this. I said, you know, I asked him first off, you know, who is who who does he model himself after as a mayor? And and you know, he came out of the Dinkins administration. A lot of people may not be aware of that. Probably our last real progressive and decent mayor in New York, uh, at least in the last 50, 60 years. <laughs> but he 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 looked at the Dinkins administration as a model for himself, and then you know, a little bit further back. Uh, but I asked him, do you think if the press, if if we had one publication in New York City that was truly progressive, meaning, you know, if if Wayne Barrett were still around, if the Village Voice still had teeth, if people read it every day, you know, ignore the New York Times, because yes, they cover New York politics, but it's not as, you know, it's not as feisty as, say, the other papers. Do you think that things would be different? And he said, yeah. He thinks a lot of the framing, what you just said, Rose, is so much of the framing was built around, um, built by these very conservative publications and tapping into the fights that he faced with Cuomo that really nobody will face. And and de Blasio faced up against Cuomo. Uh, Bloomberg barely faced it with Cuomo. And they obviously agree on a lot of issues. Um, and if you're not naturally inclined to be a great messenger, or if you're fighting all these battles, it can be tough. And, you know, there are a lot of politicians, by the way, who are not great messengers. And I think people forget that. Like, they might be good leaders in different aspects. They might be great organizers. So that, I was I was fascinated to see how how open he was about talking about the media environment and his inability to sort of capture the narrative. And he was very aware of it and, and willing to discuss it. Um, my two cents on this are... I was very upset at him about his connections to real estate and being unwilling to rein in real estate, even in the most incremental of ways. And I know his affordable housing program was what he would probably say is an incremental approach to reining in on real estate and also dealing with uh, the issues with education and public schools in that um, there's segregation in you know, New York City public schools, something that he could not admit until recent months and say out loud. Uh, but his solution was always through diversifying real estate and having, you know, an apartment with uh, multi-income families. So it's not, you know, not just a bunch of high rises that pop up with billionaires, but you have, you know, allocated housing that's more affordable. Now that's not taking on developers, obviously, and developers own this city. So I, you know, I would have, I would have liked to see a mayor, um, you know, raining on them a little bit more because it does affect every single aspect of the city when developers are getting major tax breaks, when oligarchs are buying, you know, one out of three houses in New York City and they're not paying taxes on them and and don't even live in the city. It transforms the way a neighborhood is shaped, it transforms small business. We didn't even have small business rent control. The only reason we have it right now is because of the pandemic. Uh, so, you know, that that to me was my, my issue. And then the NYPD, I think the least he could have done is just said, 
you know, why are a bunch of Long Islanders and 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 folks from New Jersey or upstate determining how you know security in our city should, should the politics of our city? That's just not how it should be. If you just said that, I think it would have made a huge difference. I mean, obviously, there were multiple. Uh, Eric Garner, like he dragged his feet on Eric Garner for a very long time, and it was horrifying and sad. Uh, closing Rikers, you know, he supported closing Rikers, and it's going through a horrifying process right now. And I don't know if the solutions are are right or wrong, but you know, that's been a disaster this year with so many uh, deaths at Rikers more than ever. And then. Um, there was one more thing I was going to mention. I just want to do a deep dump <laughs> while we have a chance. Uh, you know, I, I was listening to WNYC this morning, and they were talking about this article. It was funny because I was already thinking about doing it. And and the calls in, I mean, while they graded him maybe a C or a B, nobody seemed to have this thing that you see in the New York Post, which is everybody hates de Blasio. And I was really surprised by how many people had a pretty deep understanding of, of – the de Blasio administration, his weaknesses and his strengths. And um, I think that plays to his advantage. This is what I was going to say. He's running for governor. And I'm curious, you know, what you guys think about his run for governor. Do you think that he thinks he's actually going to win? Or is this about his opportunity to really talk about the success and remind people and 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 dig into his legacy? Or is it both? What do you think, Napoleon? Well, I'm I'm not too too well versed on uh, the governor races in New York to know if he actually has a chance to run, but obviously it's um, just like right, don't worry, <laughs> run his run for for president was uh, to me it's it's like a personal commercial for him and his brand, uh, regardless of where he's going to take it. I don't think he has anything to lose and, from doing it, and he could do it. And and actually the the last moves he's doing with the mandates and everything is probably to, to bolster his image further. And you know, I see him as a career politician, so he's gonna he's gonna try to aim as high as he can. And if he can't get it, he's gonna still be in some sort of money and be able to leverage his name one way or the other. So that that's the way that's the cynical way I look at it. I agree can with a that. Sandinista be the governor of New York? <laughs> go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, <laughs> I feel like this is a long shot candidacy for sure. It's uh. I mean, he's New York State is so much less progressive than the city, and he's progressive, and those are all of his uh, all of his accomplishments are progressive. We have other, you know, if, if we're going to compare with progressives, we have you know other better suited candidates in the field. Um, like you know, I think Tish James is going to gobble up a lot of progressive votes, and she has a state profile. People know her across the state. She has a very high profile. You know, she had that investigation into Cuomo. She's I think in terms of who he's going up against, it, it seems like it's something he could leverage into maybe a, uh, you know, commissionership or something. But mm. uh, to be, if I would be surprised, I think, I'd be surprised if he thought that he had a real chance, but, you know, may, I think he maybe actually thought he had a real chance in the presidency. So maybe, maybe uh, he really does think that, but I don't think that that's the case. I know people thought that. I just never bought it. I felt like he can't be mm. that naive. And there has to be some other angle. And the, the only angle I can think of is this is an opportunity for him to really lean into this is what we achieved. So that, you know, the 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 New York Post legacy is not what sticks in people's minds because people always go, thanks to Blasio, thanks to Blasio. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it's interesting because, you know, you mentioned his public messaging and it has been bad for the most part, you know, as when he's been mayor. But he's an amazing orator. Like he's a great debater. And I, I was reminded of that during the presidential debates 
where I was like, wow, this is why we elected him. This is why we reelected him because he's really good at talking about his ideas and about making them sound viable and about, you know, patting himself on the back. So, I mean, that could be a good point too. I mean, just getting on the debate stage is kind of where he shines. And so that, that really would be useful in reconstructing his legacy and image. That's, that's a good point. He was, he was killer in the debate. It was awesome to see. <laughs> All right. Um, I, I don't want to leave New York just yet because on our show, we actually haven't covered Cuomo that much, which is crazy given, given everything. Uh, but Chris Cuomo since, since last week has resigned from, uh, from CNN and every day there's a new piece of information that's coming out. He's, he resigned from CNN. He was making $6 million a year. He had a three-year contract with CNN. And now he's at absolute war with CNN, is going to sue them for $18 million, basically his three-year contract. Um, he stepped down from Sirius XM where he had a show. I don't know what happened there. I used to work at Sirius XM, so I'm really curious how that happened. And then um, HarperCollins which uh, you know was was publishing his book has decided that they're not going to continue uh, his contract for his book, and you know it's all based on it's all based on essentially you know what happened. Letitia, Letitia James, uh, Letitia James unveiled through the Attorney General's investigation of Andrew Cuomo that Chris Cuomo was advising much more than he even said, advising the Cuomo administration and. I'm not going to say this is not actually not uncommon, I think, in, in the news industry. I think a lot of folks uh, do favors for folks, and that's kind of how access journalism is created, uh, is built. But there were sexual uh, – whether it was assault or harassment allegations, we really don't know because it hasn't been disclosed. But there's, some, I guess, something much, much worse. So my question is – like, not the reaction. I mean, I think, I think we all have – get what's happening right now. But is he going away? Do you think that this is the end or is this or or you know maybe there's like a new lane that's being carved out right now where it's the the cancel democrats because they still have constituencies they're still popular. I looked at the comments it was Andrew Cuomo's birthday yesterday and I was like all these people still love him. What what is going on? What do you think Napoleon? Uh, I I think he like you said, the, the, the word cancel and stuff like that, I think he could ride on that, like he was being canceled. And since he's one of those in your face, you know, as I say it how it is, I, I don't need to have the, the same decorum as the regular news person. I think he I think there's a way for him to like reinvent himself in a way. And it's not it's not going to be what it was when the platforms on CNNs or whatever. But. I, I think I think he still has enough, like you said, of an audience and people who like him and following for him to to find another lane for himself. I don't think it's he's done. I don't think I don't think he's ever going to be anything close to what he was. But I think he's still probably going to be at the periphery doing something, you know, with that audience if he's smart enough to keep going. But I think he has that shamelessness to him that it, that allows him to like keep going from something like that, which some people won't be wouldn't be able to recover it in any type of way. Rose, I'm you know whether or not he keeps going is one thing, but is this potentially an opportunity for a a space in democratic politics, whether it's you know center mm -hmm. center left politics, to really seize in on what you're seeing is actually like a, you know there are a lot of normie Democrats who feel really uncomfortable with with the rate of canceling folks has gone. I mean, if you talk to voters on the ground, maybe it's not our folks, but it's there are a lot of older voters who feel like woke is 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 being used as a weapon and like 
we're not into it. Yeah, it's an interesting issue. Um, and it's interesting how it factors into politics now. I mean, you know, we, we've been talking about wokeness a lot in sort of a more social environment. And, and there's been obviously instances in politics too, like, you know, where it's it's come into play before and there's definitely been sort of a cancellation. But I, I do I do feel like all cancellations are mostly for the most part temporary. I mean, I'm sure in enough time we'll see them both reemerge, both Chris and Andrew reemerge in some capacity. I mean, I agree not to the degree that they were before, but um, in, you know, it, it, becoming power players. I mean, we see Jeffrey Tubin's back online. I, you know, it, only takes, it only takes a few and, you know, and everything is relative to the degree of severity. So yeah, that would take a few months. This will take a few years, but um, in terms of sort of left, left center, left politics, I think that is something we, that definitely needs to be grappled with. And like, how do you cancel how do you address you know issues within a party without you know having it be sort of your in or your out um and i don't really know how to go about that i mean i think the scott stringer issue is actually an ex interesting example ran of for that. Mayor. he's the comptroller stringer, the new york city comptroller ran for mayor and um was accused of sexual assault by a former volunteer on his 2002 campaign so 10 years ago and, um, you know, he was immediately canceled. So this is kind of another example of that happening. Um, and he was sort of center left and he was immediately, you know, ish, kind of just tossed to the side and he was a progressive front runner and everyone withdrew their endorsements of him before there was really any sort of corroboration or investigation mm -hmm. into it. And I think a lot of people were frustrated by that. that there wasn't enough due process. I mean, this right. is different with Cuomo because there really was uh, an investigation and due process. Um, but it, it is, an, and I think afterwards, a lot of people came forward and said, in Scott Stringer's example, you know, we regret, some people came forward, and I know this one politician, Jamal Bowman did, came forward and said, you know, I kind of regret immediately withdrawing my endorsement without any sort of, um, just kind of bandwagoning it. So this is a question I think we really have to grapple with in some way as progressives, um, very online progressives that, you know, because Twitter is such a, a, a fuel for cancellation. Uh, how how we can go about uh, this sort of issue, but I think it is at least the Cuomo's case is pretty cut and dry in my mind. And you know, and I'll just add to that because I I feel you know I've seen it especially in New York politics where sometimes progressives don't understand that the information they're getting is from the right wing, and it's not actually vetted and like pure. I don't you know I wouldn't say that with the case of of Scott Stringer we can't know for sure, but mm -hmm. there are multiple, I've seen multiple um, stories on on folks that come out and are later debunked or you start to understand a little bit in, in more depth where the stories came from or who planted them. And by then, it's like somebody has been affected. Or on the other hand, you look at someone like Lindsay Boylan, whose life has really been affected. She's run twice and it has absolutely affected her. Um, the harassment, the smears, uh, uh, you see Malatrust, the, the, the chancellor of SUNY, who is being defended right now, and he was very much part of, of the strategy to smear and combat Lindsey Boylan, and she has to deal with those repercussions as well as everybody who's been, you know, whether it's sexually harassed or assaulted in the um, from the administration. And you know, what are we as a society doing to make sure that their voices are supported and their careers are supported? Because that is your life. That's your livelihood. It's your family's livelihood. Right. Um, I want to shift gears just a little bit because <laughs> yesterday, uh, I don't, like, no one seems to be really talking.
about it, but it's kind of a big deal. Uh, the House passed a $768 billion defense policy bill. And uh, hey, they actually did more than uh, what President Biden was calling for. So, you know, congratulations, defense industry. Uh, it's a pretty intense bill, very, very complicated. But I want to highlight a couple of quotes from this New York Times article. Um, so this is quote, this is the from the article itself saying also milling missing from the final legislation was a provision passed by the House that directed Mr. Biden to impose sanctions over the Nord Stream 2, an undersea gas pipeline running from Russia to Germany that lawmakers fear will give Moscow undue leverage over Central Europe. And then we'll get to another quote in a second. Um, you know, Josh Fox comes on our show a lot. And, and Josh Fox is, of course, uh, the director behind Gasland and Gasland 2, you know, who who I would say mainstreamed uh, the fight against, you know, fracking and natural gas and was a big part of the fight in Europe to ban fracking. And there are all these loopholes. And even in New York State where we've banned fracking, which he helped lead that effort to, um, there are loopholes. But he's always said since 2016 that the 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 Putin anger towards Hillary was really, really came down to this fight over pipelines and specifically um, uh, in, in the Arctic. And, you know, you go back and like, oh my gosh, this does seem very much, that's, that's, that's what's happening. And so he's been banging the drum, beating the drum on this uh, for a long time saying, you know, Russiagate is sort of a thing, but it's not in the way that the Democrats are framing it because the Democrats don't want to be seen in this like oil war with, with Russia. It's not a great policy. Um, yeah, I mean, foreign policy is complicated and has a, a, a big impact on our lives. But Rose, I mean, are we like in this this like weird, quiet war when we talk about a Cold War? I mean, like to me, that's the Cold War. It's it's really over oil and gas. Totally. Yeah. And it, looking at that whole situation with it, it just it just seems that, you know, this this could be really ripe for a, a big conflict. I mean, the. Uh, the pipeline is clearly not just an issue in terms of environmentalism. It's also, you know, this a, a power play for Russia to both, you know, take more control over the Ukraine since the Ukraine won't won't have, um, I guess, access to the fees that they normally would because the pipeline goes through their country. Uh, so this is both a power play to gain access over, you know, Ukraine and then also to um, to, to just become a huge power player in terms of having the gas in and being able to distribute gas in Europe, um, just giving Russia all this power. And we've seen during COVID how, how much Europe sort of needs that. Uh, so it's, you know, we, the U S has, has already come out against it a while ago and been like, you know, anti the pipeline and having, you know, going to sanction it heavily. But, um, it just seems like there's nowhere to go, but up in terms of escalation. So mm -hmm. definitely is a worrisome, a worrisome thing. Um, and it's going to be interesting to follow, but it's it's hard to imagine that, you know, as the U.S. sanctions get more intense and that in turn makes the Russians more angry that this wouldn't become a, you know, potentially Cold War-like scenario. Napoleon, um, what I find interesting about this and, and sort of the moves by Russia and, and some of Putin's, and I, when I say Russia, I, I really mean Putin. So I know people get really intense about this. So the Putin government uh, and, and his allies are, there are, the political side of this is destabilizing countries in Europe through pushing candidates that uh, lean more fascistic and more quote unquote populist. And so you're seeing, especially in Eastern Europe, 
a lot more of that rise. And it's it's creating conditions or the conditions, I guess, existed, but creating conditions where there can be a destabilization of parts of Europe, whether it's Brexit or which there's a direct role in, in interference. I mean, foreign interference happens everywhere. I get it. But if 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 the goal is for a pipeline and more um, natural gas and in the and the pathway to that is through essentially pushing fascism, it's a pretty scary uh, situation. I mean, you, you spend a lot of time in Europe. Like how, how are the conditions on the ground right now? I mean, it's it's definitely definitely scary, and uh, in in particular, I've been um, actually uh, was part of a, a new show, a French on French TV, and and they were talking about how French France politics is come becoming even more right wing, and there's a lot of right wing candidates, and there's rival right wing candidates with Le Pen yeah. and Zemmour. So it's I'm seeing more and more countries in Europe, just like in America too. It's like everything seems to be leaning towards the right. So I, I definitely think it's a trend going on and it's definitely a concern. And if people like Russia and forces like that are underhandedly kind of pulling the strings or pulling along because they wanted to stabilize as their attention, um, <laughs> we're heading towards, you know, like very, very uh, sketchy, uh, a sketchy future when it comes to that. You know, it's going to be very, very complex. And um I don't. I, I think the tensions are just going to keep slowly rising until I don't know what happens. I want to read the second quote from this article that stuck stood out to me. Um, quote: I support having by far the strongest military in the world and the good-paying defense jobs in my district that pr- protect our troops," said Representative Andy Levine, um, a Democrat from Michigan. But he continues: I cannot support ever increasing military spending in the face of so much human need across our country. What is, I mean, that's like classic, you know, politician speak. But what I find so powerful about that is he actually narrows in on on what creates the conditions for the right wing to spread. And, you know, obviously military spending and and government spending um, is a is a is a message that libertarians and some people on the right or anti-establishment like to hone in on. Um, but I mean, the conditions of not putting your money into your own people and not paying for healthcare and not having a fully funded education system and infrastructure, we're sitting here fighting over, over building roads right now with a, a fellow Democrat, but you know, we have no problem throwing out, you know, all these contracts to, 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 to defense contractors. I think, you know, he's obviously onto something, but uh, just to pivot back to the rise of fascism, I mean, Rose, how much of that is the root of what's happening right now? The rise in fascism. It, I mean, it's interesting to think about how, yeah, these these this is all sort of happening at the same time. You have Russia uh, or Putin, Putin's government, kind of with the, with fascist tendencies rising up in an environment, not necessarily locally, but you know, in, in a world environment that is kind of more sympathetic towards right right wing tendencies um and it's interesting also to think about how different how how right wing means something di- a little bit different in every country right. uh you know i think it's it, in in europe it's definitely very race and motivated very um motivated by the fact that there's been that a big refugee crisis and a real backlash to that and that's a hundred percent you know not this necessarily the refugee crisis but in america there is a, a big race element too but um it, it, I mean, there's it, it, there's no doubt that um, there's there's this rising kind of right wing fervor. It's interesting. I, it's hard to imagine. I don't really have any answers to why. I'd be interested to hear if you guys have any theories as to why this is happening now. Maybe it's something about how 
you know, the conditions, uh, it's just sort of a, a sort of pendulum swing that could, that could be it. But, um, you know, it, it kind of just quickly back on the military spending thing though, it's, it's, inter- we just exited a 20 year war and the defense <laughs> bill is, um, bigger than it was. It's just, it's like, and we have in part, in part because of the new, um, technology that they need. Like, why, why do we need that? Right. Anyway, <laughs> I was on the hill. I was on rising yesterday morning or two days ago. And, uh, and we were talking about the, the, the satellite fight, the space laser fight that's happening right now between China, Russia, and the U S and how that is the new, you know, that's the, that's the new arms race. And mm. I like my basic question was how many do you need in space? Like, <laughs> and, and, and their argument was, well, you know, China and Russia are jamming up our satellites, so we need more satellites. And they're creating these like space lasers that block things. I'm like, what on earth? I mean, this is the fight. And and, and I mean, the implications still, by the way, affect human lives. So if we're sitting here saying, well, at least, you know, there aren't soldiers out there. No, I mean, if you disrupt a power grid, how, as we've seen multiple times, how does that affect somebody's ability to survive, to be able to access water if you're, you know, on a 15-story apartment, you know, and you're elderly, uh, you can't move, you don't have water. Like, this people need to understand like how this stuff impacts their lives. And that is something I think the Biden administration could do a much better job of explaining. Um, Napoleon, final thoughts on everything. You got the yeah, floor. I, I just I, I feel I feel as if uh, even reading reading that article that either they're trying to stoke fear in us, making us believe that it's necessary for them to spend that much because of the threats, the imminent threats, or American is like seriously scared. Too, I feel like America, with a capital A, somehow understands that its military, its 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 right to exist, or you know, without it, it, it wouldn't be the the America in in that in their in their sense and in, in the way we know America being. So it's it's, I think there's a lot of fear in the air, and and they they don't want to lose their 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 position in 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 geopolitics. Well. Space laser lasers, uh, if they happen to interfere with Elon Musk, I'll just leave it there <laughs> when he's in space. <laughs> All right, guys, you are awesome. Thanks for joining today. Thanks for everybody for watching and listening. Make sure to check us out on patreon.com slash the Nomi Key Show. Support the show. That is how we make this thing work. It's how I get better internet because my internet's been choppy all day. I don't know what's going on with it. Um, and it's it's how we're able to to put this production on. So thank you to everybody for watching, for supporting, and we will see you on Friday for Femme Friday. We got a good one. We got lots of candidates because I know you guys have been asking for for candidates. All right, stay in solidarity. The No Mickey Show. Clash momentarily for class solidarity. Cash circulating, give the masses back its currency. Greed from a leech, only God stay fed. Deep state, faith fed, everybody break bread. Racism, homophobia, sexism, religion in this melted pot. We live in time to build a new system. Unionize labor rights, highlight the issue. Talking heads left his best. The saga continues. The No Mickey Show.